Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the Christian response to the sexual revolution, as if there actually was one. Before I begin, let me note that this episode is going to have scientific terminology regarding sexual behavior. As such, I do not view this as an explicit episode. I'm going to deal very factually and yet very frankly with issues. Perhaps next week, I'll include some things, at least from clips, that might bring about my first explicit tag. I have been asked in the past if I believe in a magic man in the sky, if that is God. No. I believe in billions of what we call years, laying out an infinite, or I think we'd have to call it infinite anyway, pattern of causes and effects that could only be comprehended from an eternal and omniscient perspective, and that the artist behind this tapestry does beautiful work. There. I have just failed completely to describe God, and yet I've come closer to the truth than you'll hear in most churches. How does that connect to the sexual revolution in America, and much of the world, really, for the 1960s and 1970s? Many ways, actually. Here are two. First, if you are a theist, you believe that God created sex and called it good. It is obvious, but sometimes my Christian friends need a reminder. Jewish friends? Less so. Muslim friends? Well, sad to say we don't discuss it. Second, to have faith in God. Something not superstitious, not the magic man in the sky idea, but genuine faith in God is to accept the concepts of cause and effect. Call it consequences if you like, describe it as the fall of mankind, perhaps use more scientific language. Do what you must, but acknowledge the role of cause and effect, please. So, I'm hitting today's conversation with a couple of assumptions that are crucial and, to my mind, really obvious. First, there was a sexual revolution. And second, something caused it. To address these issues properly, though, I need to start with our different drummer for this week, David R. Mace. If this sounds like I'm quoting a book jacket, I am. The book is called The Christian Response to the Sexual Revolution. It was written in 1970, right in the heart of the tumultuous events. Dr. David Mace is an internationally known authority on marriage and family guidance, a professor of family sociology at the Behavioral Sciences Center of Bowman Gray School of Medicine, Wake Forest University. He previously served as executive director of the American Association of Marriage Counselors and as Executive Director of the National Marriage Guidance Council of Great Britain. Dr. Mace has published well over a thousand articles in everything from scholarly journals to the magazines you might find on the newsstand. And he is also the author of numerous books, including this one that I'm going to refer to quite liberally here, The Christian Response to the Sexual Revolution. But first, a little bit more about Dr. Mace. I found very little information about him online. I fear that perhaps he's become a 
forgotten individual in the area of sociology and particularly in the area of the Christian response to challenges that face uh, marriage and society. And I'm still going to call it the modern world. Anything really from 1960-something to the modern era. I did find one article, though, where Dr. Mace was introduced this way. The best authority in the world on marriage and family from a Christian perspective. A Methodist minister turned Quaker. A British native turned American. An adventurous motorcyclist turned tender counselor. And an overachieving author, speaker, minister, and activist. He never hesitated to work sacrificially in support of Christian marriages and Christian homes. Now, this was many years ago, and I'm sad to say that Dr. Mace has passed on. But what he left us is a very interesting legacy. If you look to the words that he spoke into the controversy over the sexual revolution in the late 1960s and in 1970 itself. I want to share a couple of his concepts before I get into my thoughts and my ideas about what the Christian response to the sexual revolution was or was not, and by all means, what it should have and could have been. Any serious attempt to study the basis of the traditional Christian sex ethic soon makes it clear that the whole structure rests upon foundations that have almost completely been discredited, either by modern scientific knowledge or by the conditions of modern life, so completely different either from those of Palestine in biblical times or of medieval Europe. As an aside, let me note, here is Greg. This is a book published in 1970, so he's talking about what we would call some fairly old science. Quoting Dr. Mace, The two main pillars on which the ancient structure rests are the Hebrew horror of wasting semen and the Augustinian concept of the inherent sinfulness of sexual desire and its role in transmitting original sin to offspring. Add to this men's property rights in women's sexuality and the concept of unnatural acts as developed by Aquinas and others. Again and again, it is from these principles that Christian standards of sexual behavior have been derived. Relate modern teachings to these principles and they begin to make some sense. Take away these foundations and they collapse in disorder. The plain fact is that these principles have lost their validity today. We know now that semen contains millions of sperms and that these, and not the fluid as a whole, carry the new life and that an inevitable wastage of sperms takes place on a fantastic scale. We do not now regard sexual desire as inherently sinful, and the science of genetics has taught us that the hereditary characteristics of the parent are transmitted to the young through the chromosomes and genes, and that the undeniable perverseness of human nature gets through quite regardless of the sexual excitement that accompanies intercourse. In our modern world, the idea that whatever is quote-unquote unnatural which is identified according to John Calvin by our reaction of repugnance. Let me take an aside here and just call this out, that what we call unnatural today has by and large been defined by Calvin, and his standard was, does it give the person a reaction of repugnance? It's a completely subjective standard, one that you cannot conceive of having any sort of credibility from the perspective of a court of law, shouldn't have any respectability or accountability from you know, legislation in Congress or, or state legislatures either. Look at it this way, that this standard that whatever is unnatural is consequently wrong would be totally unacceptable if you were looking at it from the perspective of stomach pumps 
or heart transplants, or astronauts drinking their own and each other's distilled urine. On what, then, are we to base our Christian standards of sex morality? Why not on the ethical teaching of Jesus? Sexual behavior falls within the sphere of human relationships, and in that area we have a quite clear criteria in the Golden Rule and in the commandments to love our neighbor. Yet, in all traditional Christian writings on sex morality that I have read, this referring to David Mace back in 1970, I cannot recall a single instance in which this basic ethical teaching of Jesus is taken as the guideline. What Mace is sharing here is that there are certain assumptions that have been made throughout history based on very old writing. Now, I don't want to infer that there's no such thing as original sin, but I do believe that the notion of Augustine and others, that original sin meant that if you were in a moment of heightened passion, if your arousals were inflamed, if you were thinking lustful thoughts at the time of intercourse, and that the resulting impregnation was therefore going to be doomed to be a sinful human, uh, that's not really the perspective that we would look at it from. We do understand today that the genetic code is passed from genes and chromosomes and that you know human nature is what it is, regardless of how much fun or how little fun the parents of that child would have been having. Perhaps the most pronounced is the notion of Aquinas and others that there was only one sperm in semen to correspond with the one egg from the woman's ovary and therefore it was an act of murder or a potential act of murder or an act of potential murder for that semen to be wasted. As Dr. Mace points out so clearly, we really know now that with every ejaculation, there are millions and millions of sperm wasted and that this one-to-one logic, which drives what we still have in a lot of our sexual ethics today, comes to us from a very limited understanding of science in the Middle Ages. So what does Dr. Mace recommend that we do about this? I'm going to go into some detail about what the Christian church did not do in response to the sexual revolution. But I'm thankful to Dr. Mace, and I feel very comfortable calling him out as a different drummer because of the positive answer he gives, because of the suggestions that he raises that I think really would have made a difference at that crucial time. I also like the fact that Dr. Mace is, for whatever reason, sadly I would say, underappreciated, less well-known, and underregarded today. When you hear what he has to say and his suggestions for how some of the negative things that have come from the sexual revolution might have been properly countered, I think you'll see what I mean. Picking up there, Dr. Mace says this, There are, in fact, at least some fundamental principles governing sexual relationships that any responsible human community would have to insist upon for a start. The first is that gross exploitation of one person by another for sexual purposes cannot be tolerated, or no one is secure. The second is that sexual behavior that offends the community's sense of propriety and good taste must not be flaunted publicly. The third is that men and women must assume responsibility for children born as a result of their sexual unions. Disregard for these three basic rules would soon cause serious trouble in any society. I would offer that they probably have already caused serious trouble in our societies today. Picking back up with Dr. Mace, he says this, Beyond these primary safeguards, others soon begin to emerge. For example, most of us would not want to encourage incestuous sex relationships, and we would want to set age limits to prevent the very young from becoming sexually involved too early in life. 
so we could go on, and soon a system of sex ethics would begin to take shape. The simple truth is that the social control of sex expression, as Jeffrey May called it, always has been and always will be a responsibility of any organized human community. The sexual revolution thus launches us inevitably upon a quest for the true meaning of human sexuality. So I credit David Mays, not with saying that the sexual revolution in its whole was entirely bad. Instead, what Dr. Mace did was take a look at the effects that were obvious around him, effects that were represented by the sexual revolution in various facets, and ask questions about what those causes were. Those questions led him to conclude that certain aspects of what we call traditional Christian philosophy about sexual ethics and sexual behavior were in and of themselves non-biblical, or at the very least, extra-biblical going beyond anything that the Bible says and imposing new standards based on the writings of people who came well after the original biblical authors and many of those with seriously flawed assumptions or assumptions based on societies which may have functioned okay in medieval Europe or ancient Palestine but do not have the right answers for our modern world. So, very happy to cite David Mace as a different drummer and actually, I think, the first different drummer that has led off a program. That's a place of honor that, in my mind, is well-earned. Now that I've laid a foundation with David Armace's perspective, let me jump into my own ideas about the Christian response to the sexual revolution. The truth is that American Christians never actually responded to the so-called sexual revolution. As a matter of fact, a great many of today's conservative Christians would flatly reject the response Mace proposed so many decades ago. We're talking 40 years now, I suppose. For example, Mace's acknowledgement of the existence of things like homosexuality and pornography would have been absolutely unacceptable or would still be absolutely unacceptable. To understand the actual costs of the sexual revolution and the absence of any meaningful counter-revolution, we must first examine some of the realities that really can't be taken for granted. So we take as a given that there was a sexual revolution, and it was the result of some cause and effect that made it, for want of a better word, inevitable. Then the last thing I would say is that the sexual revolution was caused both by the actions of some people, maybe many people, but also by the inaction of others. We think of that turbulent period in American cultural history as a time when significant things were said and significant things were done. But we must also acknowledge that it was a period of time in which, significantly, certain things were not said and not done. David Mace wrote his book in 1970. There was plenty of time for a response. I would say that as a society, we allowed the sexual revolution to occur. And the subsequent lack of any significant counter-revolution is particularly damning to Christians. Since religious groups, and particularly conservative Christian groups, purport to have a stake in the moral health of our society, this paralysis in the face of a great moral crisis reveals much about the ability of Christian leaders to influence our society. To review, we are taking a few things for granted here. There was a sexual revolution. It was inevitable, and we cannot blame the revolution, or by extension, its consequences, on them. As Christians, there's a lot of us in there too. 
Before I make it sound as if critics of our society's present moral conditions are crying about a rainy day, let's examine the very real consequences that worry a great many Americans. Here are just five of the most significant problems or challenges attributed to the sexual revolution. Abortion, pornography, illegitimacy, divorce, and homosexuality. I'll get to my argument that the last one is perhaps less a direct cause and effect based on the sexual revolution, but I think it's there in the minds of many conservatives and therefore worth discussing. The scope of all of these problems, regardless how much you attribute them to the sexual revolution, is undeniable. Even if you strongly support safe and legal abortion in principle, a million per year is a shocking rate. Imagine how shocking that rate would have been to both conservatives and liberals in the 1960s. The 3 to 5% of crisis abortions, instances such as rape and incest and health concerns, that number is probably a higher total than many early pro-choice activists believed they were choosing. They weren't choosing 1.5 million a year. As an element of the revolution, pornography was supposed to serve its purpose, perhaps as a symbolic binge of free expression. And then once it no longer enjoyed the distinction of being you know, new, maybe it was going to fade. Maybe it was going to level off. Well, either pornography is in still sense uh, increasingly necessary, something I hesitate to suggest, or the acceptance of pornography's role in the sexual revolution was granted some premature validity, but nothing about pornography has slowed down. We were naive to assume that birth control would counteract illegitimacy. Somehow the idea that the availability of birth control had a causal relationship with its proper usage was really flawed. This admission doesn't begin to even address the idea that you got to factor in the annual abortion rate. Despite pre- and post-conception methods of eliminating childbirth, some communities still have illegitimacy rates north of 30%. Divorce, in its own way, kind of creates another level of semi-illegitimacy too. If approximately half of all marriages end in divorce now, and we assume that most of them involve children, these separations often create single-parent homes, and thus, there's where I make my comparison to the illegitimacy problem. If the challenge of illegitimacy is you have people in lower-income situations struggling to get by with only one wage earner, with only one parent in the household, uh, divorces and separations create some of that as well. The sexual revolution, by its nature, should have created better marriages. We broke the cycle of what I would call libidinous matrimony. No longer was it necessary to get married in order to have sexual relations with somebody. So, why are we creating better marriages? I would say that right now, the people who don't have to marry as a means of sexual expression are getting divorced at a higher rate than those people whose marriages were the only way they could express their sexuality. Homosexuality is one of the most divisive social issues in our society. I don't think that's always a negative thing, because it means that we're talking about it. We're arguing about it, but at least we're talking about it. But you know what? I don't really attribute homosexuality to the sexual revolution in any direct way. It's almost a side effect of the revolution. It may be enough to say that homosexuality may eventually be known as the Pandora's box of the sexual libertarians. AIDS has only heightened polarizing fears and accompanying prejudices about homosexuality, but a lot of those issues were really thrust into the spotlight by the sexual revolution. Each of these five issues, I hesitate to call all of them problems, 
but issues arising from the sexual revolution as a product of both liberalizing actions by some people, leaders of this new movement, and the inadequate response of those who should have been, in some areas, holding the line. Let me kind of wander through these five issues again and talk about the relationship to the sexual revolution and what we didn't do. The legalization of abortion caught many conservatives by complete surprise. While scholars in favor of abortion rights were making solid arguments against existing abortion law, opponents of abortion stood blindly by, hiding behind terms like murder. Does this sound familiar? We are 35 or 40 years into this debate, and precious little has changed in the pro-life approach to the issue. Although anti-abortion leaders have made creative use of legal arguments, they've done quite well in certain court appearances, it is almost nonsensical to refer to an anti-abortion scholar. Now, I actually think I could name a couple, but I would challenge anybody to send me an email at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com and name me more than two anti-abortion scholars. It's enough to say that from my perspective, if you look simply at the debate and score the arguments on their merit, that the pro-choice side has had the advantage here throughout the entire history of legal abortion. Pro-life groups have used the same set of arguments against abortion all this time. Early on, it was impossible to say how many illegal abortions were performed for American women. It would be even more speculative to estimate how many abortions would have been performed in the years before Roe v. Wade if, you know, the Supreme Court had made that decision earlier. Since that landmark decision, though, the numbers have been tabulated with a fair degree of accuracy, and they have been shockingly consistent. On the one hand, it is tempting to argue that, hey, maybe 1 million or 1.5 million abortions a year is simply the natural number for a population of 300 million people. Wow, that makes abortion sound ridiculously inevitable. On the other hand, and I think it's a hand holding a better set of cards, it's tempting to argue that neither the pro-choice nor pro-life propaganda has had much influence on the decisions of women seeking abortion. From a purely pro-choice point of view, this is not a problem. Women decide. Influencing individual decisions is not only unnecessary, it may be unwelcome from a pro-choice perspective. See, the pro-choice view is interested in maintaining the existence of this option, whether it's exercised or not. From a pure pro-life point of view, however, the inflexibility of the abortion totals indicates a complete public policy failure. Despite years of crying, screaming, and threatening, pro-life groups do not seem to be influencing the one constituency that actually has the most control over abortion frequency. In fact, if you have a pro-life perspective, I want to ask you right now to stop and consider who is in that constituency. Which group has the most control over the abortion rate? Is it judges? Is it doctors? Is it the President of the United States? Or is it unhappily pregnant women? It was really only a little more than 12 to 14 years ago that pro-life groups began addressing their message to unhappily pregnant women at all. And the saddest indictment I have for the mainstream Christian denominations. I'm talking to you, Roman Catholics. I'm talking to you, Southern Baptists. I'm talking to you, United Methodists and Presbyterians and Lutherans. You know which group actually spoke out and reached out to unhappily pregnant women and made a suggestion that burying the child and putting the child up for adoption was an heroic act. It was the Mormons. 
The bottom line is that the unpersuasive arguments of the anti-abortion movement have consistently failed to affect the rate of abortion in America. The fear of being a murderer has held the abortion rate down to 1.5 million. Maybe it was only 1 million in 1975. We've had some years that were closer to 2 million. But other factors being equal, the same argument should be expected to maintain the same influence. The numbers support this logic. Consequently, the inadequacy of the pro-life position against abortion has as much to do with the high rate of abortion as its mere legality does. Okay, while religious leaders were failing to open a dialogue about issues like abortion and divorce, pornography was the source of significant Christian consternation. In hindsight, a great deal of time and effort and money was spent by conservatives battling against what might prove to be the least expensive of the five sexual revolutionary issues I'm addressing. The costs of divorce and illegitimacy to me are obvious. The costs of abortion are incalculable. Most of us will be paying the cost of AIDS in the form of insurance and research for the rest of our lives. And I think it's probably unfair to drop that AIDS bill entirely or even mostly on the lap of homosexuality. But if you just take the share of the blame that might go to rampant homosexual promiscuity, it is regardless how small, monstrously expensive. Instead of attacking what would become the big money issues and paying for the problems of the sexual revolution, religious groups instead spent millions attacking, and I would say as a result, publicizing so-called smut. Many movie makers and publishers actually pandered to this consternation of church leaders, it was an advertising plus for them. On the whole, conservative leaders played right into the hands of pornographers. While battling constant legal challenges you know, costs a lot more than conventional advertising, the notoriety just proved invaluable. Ironically, church groups elected to attack on the issue of pornography, which might have been effectively countered with a quiet disapproval. Without the hype, though, without the fear that a ban would deprive the curious of a momentary indulgence... Successful pornographic enterprises probably would have faded like a crowd in an automobile accident, but they didn't. Religious leaders were not opposed to the use of passive disapproval as a response to some of these social issues. In fact, that is largely the method that was used to address divorce. Like abortion, most reasonable people have little trouble conjuring up a hypothetical case where divorce would be so necessary that its denial would be criminal battered spouses, latent homosexuality, criminal incarceration, not to mention adultery. To further this analogy, though, these divorce scenarios are all nightmarish in nature, as nightmarish perhaps as facing an abortion decision. The same people who accept divorce as a necessary option can currently hope that it never happens to them. See the similarity? Unfortunately, our society never set a standard to distinguish between an unhappy marriage and an unacceptable marriage. We were unprepared, in many ways understandably. Who would have thought that the divorce rates would skyrocket in a culture where marriage itself is not necessary? The sexual revolution opened the door for sex without marriage. Before, during, after, and even childbearing outside of marriage. We'll get to that in a minute. While this freedom should have enabled people to find more suitable marriage partners, the opposite seemed to arise. Even within the strict Catholic tradition, a sense of retreat seemed to surround this issue. 
Somehow society threw the baby out with the bathwater, as the cliché goes. As we permitted bad marriages to dissolve, we did very little to improve the quality of the marriages being formed. The ultimate cost of the passive acceptance of divorce is illegitimacy. Large divorce numbers only further the devaluation of marriage as an institution. Many couples responded by avoiding the process altogether. By the time our cultural problems started manifesting themselves in illegitimacy, it was much too late for Christians to effectively respond to either promiscuity or divorce. Now, once young heterosexuals started burying it all, it was only a matter of time before homosexuals followed the trend. And again, religious leaders were totally unprepared. At the same time conservatives were failing miserably in a bid to legislate pornography out of existence, Many of the same leaders believed that homosexuality, if put under proper pressure, could be stamped out of existence as well. Since the official Christian position at the time was that homosexuality was a deviant behavior, the official Christian response leaned heavily toward treating homosexuality as though it were a pungent form of adultery. At no point was sexual preference treated as an independent thing. Nowhere does this emerge more clearly than with sodomy laws. Many states, Georgia as a particular example, sought to prosecute homosexuality out of existence, or at least out of the mainstream, by using existing laws against certain sexual acts. Even as fellatio, cunnilingus, and other acts were successfully prosecuted, judicial success had little social impact or cultural impact whatsoever. It seemed obvious to most people that such sexual activity was common enough among heterosexuals that the grounds for singling out homosexuals seemed spurious. Sodomy convictions were outnumbered by heterosexual attempts to overturn the laws, laws that had been ignored in the past and would continue to be ignored in the future, and in fact, laws that the recent Supreme Court ruling, Lawrence v. Texas, may have finally dealt with for good. At the same time, the conservative movement failed to legislate and prosecute homosexuality out of existence, it also failed to keep its public display under any sort of control. To respond to homosexuality as an issue by insisting that the acts offended community standards, conservatives would have had to have acknowledged a couple things that they really balked at. First, accept the existence of homosexuality. Whether you call that irretrievable homosexuality or actual homosexuality or non-choice-based homosexuality, it would have required pointing to it and saying, yeah, there it is. And second, permit such sexual acts to retreat into the private homes and continue unabated. By failing to engage in such a compromise, the church forced homosexuals to form the very gay rights community that it now struggles to fight against. Such a state of denial is telling. Many conservatives spent the entire sexual revolution denying that such a formal cultural upheaval ever occurred in the first place. These individuals believe that the problems of abortion, pornography, illegitimacy, and divorce, and perhaps the issue of how to manage homosexuality in a free society, that these things weren't destined to exist. Well, they were wrong. Even during the prior golden decade, just after World War II, all of these problems were present in our society in one form or another. Blindly denying their existence only made the problems worse. In his book published in 1970, Dr. Mace recommended a different approach. He called for honesty in accepting the changes that our society was facing. He called for the church in particular to fulfill its duty to minister rather than to indulge in the temptation to cast judgment. 
And ultimately, he called for a compromise in the form of minimum standards. Taking a closer look at Mesa's minimum standards, it seems obvious that he was leading Christians, if not in the right direction, at least in a much better direction. Let me recall them. Mace insisted that sexual revolutionaries should, one, refrain from exploitation, two, show propriety with respect to public community standards, and three, accept responsibility for children. By Mesa's standards, a compromise would have had a mitigating impact on each of the aforementioned problems. Abortion. Well, the sexual revolutionaries who agreed to accept responsibility for children born through their sexual activities would need some additional justification for just outright abortion on demand. If you take so-called convenience abortions out of the statistics and you end up with 97% of the abortions disappearing, you really have something there. But unfortunately, I think the failure of Christians to respond to the sexual revolution has made this much too little too late to resolve. Pornography. Although many conservatives believe that all pornography is inherently exploitative, it is clear that some pornography would still exist. This is because a relationship, particularly an indirect relationship between an exhibitionist and a voyeur, well, you know, that's, that's always, you know, whether it's potentially distasteful, that's not going to be an exploitation. That's going to be voluntary, consenting adult behavior. Pornography as an issue still would be effectively settled, though, by the rule against publicly flaunting behaviors that violate community standards of good taste. In other words, you don't have to shove it in people's faces. This harkens directly to a U.S. Supreme Court decision that a couple can legally shoot a pornographic film in their attic, develop the film in their bathroom, and screen it in their basement. There has not been anything to overturn that standard set as long ago as 1973. If only for that reason, it is probably safe to say that pornography is still going to be with us. Illegitimacy. Of Mesa's three rules, number three is clearly the most compelling for illegitimacy. It carries with it a presumption that children should not be conceived by couples unwilling to support the child. His rule might have changed the expression having a child, as though birth is an act of possessing or possession, to bearing a child, which reflects the responsibility inherent in parenting. Divorce. Among the responsibilities parents bear is following through. Divorce is not a parachute, as the illegitimacy point tries to make clear. Stopping divorce, though, has more to do with Mesa's exploitation rule. In other words, people must refrain from getting married for reasons that could be linked to selfishness and thereby to exploitation. Mace also would insist that eliminating exploitation within the relationship after a marriage would also go a long way toward ending many divorces. Homosexuality. Well, by denying this sexual preference a right to exist, conservatives unwittingly forced the issue into public view. Mace's rules might have reversed some of that trend by passively allowing homosexuality um, a rightful place. His rule against offending community standards would have kept such behaviors at least somewhat private. He would have tried to find a place where protecting grandma from being offended by what she might see would not force the police to storm into people's private homes and arrest them for things happening in their bedroom. That is actually the logic that cuts to the direct core of the Lawrence versus Texas decision that the Supreme Court recently made and that I mentioned a little bit earlier.
Hi there, this is Stu the Beard Perry entreating you to please listen to our show for those about to rock on simplysyndicated.com. Please listen to our show, please! There are aspects of the ongoing debate about homosexuality that I still frankly struggle with. For example, is homosexuality understood or even defined by its elemental sodomy? If so, should it reasonably be restricted to private behavior? While gay rights groups might have complained even then about being forced into the closet, they in truth would have had full access to the bedroom, bathroom, patio, and a whole host of private places much kinkier than a closet. On this side of the ledger, the issue is more obvious than homosexual activists would like to acknowledge. Just as it would be inappropriate for a man to frame his identity within the practice of cunnilingus, it is equally inappropriate for a man to frame his identity within the practice of fellatio. Like it or not, some people believe that the term celibate homosexual has no tangible meaning, that homosexuality is a concept, thus will always remain offensive to community standards. Here's where I struggle. I've become convinced that perhaps the concept of celibate homosexual does have some sort of tangible meaning, and therefore these arguments about what should be restricted to private behavior or allowed in public behavior get significantly more fuzzy. However, I will say this. It would be inappropriate for a man to introduce himself to someone in an office environment as a person who is committed to the practice of cunnilingus. Likewise, it is perhaps equally inappropriate for a man to introduce himself and insist that people in an office environment accept him for who he is when who he is is somebody who's committed to actively practicing fellatio. These are the problems, and they're not easy to solve. And many of them have gotten to the point where they are today with people trying to legislate each other into segregationist situations over issues that arose from the sexual revolution that were never addressed. Dr. Mace's three principles, while very conciliatory, certainly could not be confused with a moral surrender. And yet, you know what? Many opponents to the sexual revolution have failed to mount any effective counter-revolution because they wouldn't take that first step of acknowledging these kinds of standards that may suggest that we follow. So, rather than providing some sort of floor to the cultural debate that ultimately would work as a foundation for further compromises, opponents of the sexual revolution washed their hands of the issue and as a result have washed away any hope for moderation at the same time. I want to go back to what Mace said right after introducing his three principles. Beyond these primary safeguards, others soon begin to emerge. For example, most of us would not want to encourage incest. We'd set age limits to protect the very young, and we would go on and on until a system of sex ethics would begin to take shape. Here's the problem, though. If Christians refuse to acknowledge the validity of sexual revolutionary claims, if Christians put their head in the sand and pretended the whole thing didn't exist, or that there was no conversation that truly needed to be had about these issues, then the first three rules, no exploitation, protect community standards, take care of children, without that foundation, this entire network of sex ethics never did take shape. There's a lot of problems in our society that have come from the sexual revolution, and it would be wrong for me to imply that those problems cannot be laid at the feet of those people who started the revolution. But you know what? I don't stop there. To a certain degree, some of those decisions were simply a matter of cause and effect. In a future episode, I'm going to deal with that. In fact, perhaps next week, I'm going to talk a little bit about 
you know, our notion of what life was like in the 1950s versus 60s versus 70s and try to perhaps explain a little bit more about why I think the 1960s and the, and the early 70s were inevitably going to have a sexual revolution attached to them. That inevitability goes back to behaviors that happened in the 1950s. It's enough for now, though, to say that when you see a problem and choose to do nothing about it, you own a large amount of responsibility for the things you didn't do that you should have and could have done. Or at the very least, you own responsibility for that if you presume to put yourself in the position of moral arbiter and stand in judgment against people who did things you don't like. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS patient care and research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. Thank you for listening to this inappropriate conversation about the sexual revolution. As I said right up front, I was going to be dealing with some adult themes, but in my mind, those themes are not explicit. Next week, though, I'm anticipating playing some sound clips, which might put an explicit tag on this program for the first time ever. You've been warned. If you'd like to respond to any of the issues that have been raised today, or perhaps to my specific claim that you're really going to have a hard time finding three credible pro-life scholars... I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. And comments are enabled on the website for this show at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Thanks again.